Hey, welcome everyone to the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, teaching pastor here at Wayfarers Christian Church, and I've got with me once again in the studio. I'm Ashley Wakefield. Hey, everyone. This is our second season in the Boring Bible Podcast. We are going through the book of Deuteronomy, uh, which is a fun word to say, Deuteronomy. The way you said that, like you had an accent. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Maybe I was emphasizing it too much. (laughs) But uh, we're going through the book of Deuteronomy, chapter by chapter, and we are at chapter four today. This is where Moses turns on preaching. This is the first sermon in the Bible, actually starting here in chapter four. Um, This is going to be a fun chapter to talk about. It's a long chapter. Um, There's a lot of content in here, a lot of callbacks to Genesis, um, a lot of future um, things in the New Testament that call back to this chapter. There's just a lot of stuff to talk about. So strap in for a longer episode than normal this time around because we've got so much, so much to talk about and I'm really excited. You excited? Yes. All right, let's do it. All right, so chapter four opens with Moses's basic summary of why he dropped all of the history in the last three episodes. Um, And we're basically jumping straight into his first, um, this is kind of a Christian term, but I think it gets used in in secular uh, context as well. Basically his first exhortation or his first um, call to the Israelites in light of all this history here's what I want you to do. Um, and here's what you need to do in order to thrive and survive in this new land as you enter into the land and conquer it. Um, this is a long, long chapter. Uh, I think because Moses is really putting his heart on these words here. And the point of this entire chapter is really focused on, um, just how much, uh, he cares about where they're going to end up um, and uh, is trying to warn them to go one way instead of another way. Uh, a lot of themes are going to be uh, uh, beginning to unpack in this one. And uh, I kind of want to save those for after we dive straight into the um, episode. But I do think there's one theme that I think is better to put at the front end before we jump into this. And that is the theme of the choice of following after Um, God's commands and the theme of following after what you want to do. This is a theme that actually starts all the way in Genesis 3 um, in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Most of you probably know, even if you aren't affiliated with Christianity in any way, that there's a story where um, there was two people, Adam and Eve, who were basically given a garden to enjoy and eat fruit and to rule over and subdue and take care of the animals there. I sort of imagine it like sort of like a veterinary clinic almost of sorts with fruit everywhere that's always growing and, you know, just like this place that they could do whatever they wanted to do. And basically, they only have one rule. They have one one command that they could not do in this place, and that was to not eat of a specific tree, which gave them the knowledge of both good and bad, um, gave them kind of the understanding of what is a good thing to do and what is a bad thing to do. And they were told not to eat from this tree just yet. Um, they were told that uh, if they ate of it, they would die. 
And uh, for a very long time, we don't really know how long um, they didn't eat of it. But at some point, they decided um, that it was better to take knowledge of good and evil into their own hands instead of letting God um, decide what is good and what is evil. That theme kind of plays itself out in this chapter quite a bit, and you'll see that come up quite a bit. There's this kind of um, incentive, not incentive, but there's this kind of implicit um, idea that um, for the people of Israel— about to enter into this new land, they're basically entering into a new Garden of Eden. They're basically entering into a new paradise of sorts. And as they're coming into it, they have law, basically, that um, God is telling them to follow. And if they don't follow that law, things are going to go badly for them, just like it went badly for Adam and Eve when they didn't follow. Um, And that's kind of the theme that's going to kind of be over the entirety of this chapter really is once again um, if you follow after God's law if you follow after God's commands you'll have wisdom you'll have flourishing you'll be fine you'll get to enjoy abundance you'll everything will always be provided for you and if you don't then things will be bad and you'll get scattered and you'll be um, death will be close at your heels and many many things will um, bring suffering to you. So maybe that helps as kind of an intro into this chapter. Just kind of have that theme in your mind of the theme of uh, Adam and Eve basically being um, tested, if you will, in the Garden of Eden and having this test of commands. And what Moses is going to say in this chapter is going to highly relate to that theme. Hopefully that helps. Did you have any anything to add to that, Ashley, or any thoughts of your own? Um, I think it's a really beautiful thing, the idea that God gives you a choice, because even though he's God and he could force you to do whatever he wants, he does indeed that he gives you the choice. And I think that's really comforting to me because I know that I've been in situations personally where I kind of felt the urge that God wanted me to do something and I just wasn't ready to do it. And I was just like, God, I don't think I can do this. And I think that you know, and we had a conversation, like God and I had this conversation where I felt like, I felt like I was being forced to do something and God reminded me, okay, well, this is your choice. I'm not forcing you to do this. This is your decision. You can either choose to do this or not do it. It's your choice. And so it just, it makes me feel comfortable to know that God gives me that choice. And even if I happen to decide the opposite of what God would want me to do, which is what we don't prefer, but sometimes God asks us to do hard things and it can be very difficult. And I like I like the comfort of knowing that even if I choose the opposite of what God would like, that it doesn't change his love for me. So, mm, yeah, yeah, I think that's beautiful. I think um, all of this is interesting because uh, they're definitely getting uh, Moses is giving this exhortation because they're being led into a test right now. Um, and. Uh, Moses kind of, I think, already knows. We'll see by the end of Deuteronomy that he already knows how the test is going to play out. Um, he already has familiarized himself enough with the people to have a sense of where the story is going to go with them. But at this point, at least in the story, um, he's calling them to this beautiful vision of what life can look like if one chooses the tree of life instead of choosing the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So without much further being said, let's go ahead and dive into the chapter. Now, Israel, hear the decrees and laws I'm about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. 
You saw with your own eyes what the Lord did at Baal Peor. The Lord your God destroyed from among you everyone who followed the Baal of Peor. But all of you who held fast to the Lord your God are still alive today. See, I have taught your decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations, who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this is a great nation of wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them, the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, and he said to me, Assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may live and may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire to the very heavens with black clouds and deep darkness. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow and then wrote them on two stone tablets. And the Lord directed me at that time to teach you the decrees and laws you are to follow in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You saw no form of any kind that day. The Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman, or like any animal on earth or any bird that flies in the air or like any creature that moves along the ground, or any fish in the waters below. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has appointed to all the nations under heaven. But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron-smelting furnace out of Egypt to be the people of his inheritance as you now are. The Lord was angry with me because of you, and he solemnly swore that I would not cross the Jordan and enter the good land the Lord your God is giving you as your inheritance. I will die in this land. I will not cross the Jordan, but you are about to cross over and take possession of that good land. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. After you have had children and children, grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God and arousing his anger, I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you this day that you will quickly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live there long, but will continue certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or eat or smell. But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him 
if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all things have happened to you, then in latter days you will return to to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your ancestors, which he confirmed to them by oath. Ask now about the former days, long before your time, from the day God created human beings on the earth. Ask from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of the other nation for by testing, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds, like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides him there is no other. From heaven he made you hear his voice to discipline you. On earth he showed you his great fire, and you heard his words from out of the fire, because he loved your ancestors and chose their descendants after them. He brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength to drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you and to bring you into their land to give it to you for an inheritance as it is today. Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven, above and on the earth below. There is no other. Keep his decrees and commands which I am giving you today so that it may go well with you and your children after you and that you may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you for all time. Then Moses set aside three cities east of the Jordan, to which anyone who had killed a person could flee if they had unintentionally killed a neighbor without malice aforethought. They could flee into one of these cities and save their life. The cities were these, Bezer in the wilderness plateau from the Reubenites, Ramoth in Gilead for the Gadites, and Golan in Bashan for the Manassites. This is the law Moses set before the Israelites. These are the stipulations, decrees, and laws Moses gave them when they came out of Egypt and were in the valley near Beth Peor, east of the Jordan, in the land of Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, and was defeated by Moses and the Israelites as they came out of Egypt. They took possession of his land and the land of Og, king of Bashan, the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan. This land extended from Eroer on the rim of the Arnon Gorge to the Mount Sirion, that is Hermon, and included all the Arabah east of the Jordan as far as the Dead Sea, below the slopes of Pisgah. All right, so like I said, long chapter. Um, that was uh, definitely one that uh, was a little bit of an anxiety attack for me as I was reading. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we've definitely been uh, getting through um, each of these chapters and we get to a longer one that's been uh, structured um, basically in a very um, a neat and formatted sermon. Um, this chapter in particular is kind of like a 
a, a mini sermon that kind of explains a lot of what's going to come in Deuteronomy in the chapters ahead of us. And what will happen is in the next chapter, chapter five, this will begin actually a longer list of ex- exhortations. So this is kind of like uh, a lot of times in literary kind of devices and stuff in some of the biblical books, I've noticed this, they'll have like one chapter that's sort of like a summary of like the next 12 chapters. And that's def- definitely the case. This is kind of the summary chapter for like the next 12 chapters. So it's definitely something to, um, work through kind of slowly. Um, That's why this one's going to take a little longer is just kind of walking through each of the individual things because there's a lot here to unpack that's also going to get unpacked throughout um, the rest of the um, uh, book of Deuteronomy. So it's going to be fun. Uh, One of the interesting things here too at the very like beginning of this is after he's finished with all this history and all of the um, uh, all of the kind of flashback scenes that we've uh, talked about in the last three episodes, you will see this word. um, Now Israel hear the decrees. Um, That word here um, is a word that uh, will often get used um, quite a bit in uh, Jewish thought as well as um, in later uh, Christian thought as well. That word is um, Shema, which is basically um, going to get used very intentionally um, as uh, specific verses of Deuteronomy in one chapter. Hence, Um, we'll get to actually see what um, that looks like in one chapter. But I wanted to give you a little bit of a teaser here is this is the first time Moses kind of tells all of the people um, looking out over him here. Um, It's interesting because Jesus kind of does something similar to this when he teaches in the New Testament. Um, What he will do is he will say, he who has ears, let him hear. Um, And that's definitely a callback to this Moses preaching. And I've often thought about this today. I don't know, uh, Ashley, maybe you've uh, you've been under different pastors than I have, but I'd be curious. Have you ever had like a pastor that just opened up a sermon with uh, the words, "He, he who has ears, who has ears, let him hear, or something like that, or hear, hear, hear this word that I'm about to bring to you, or something like that. Has that happened a lot? I've never heard that. If I did, it would be very... I don't know want to say intense, but it would be very like, very like attention grabbing. I guess that's yeah. like the way I would phrase it, like attention grabbing. If somebody started off, like they just stood up and they were just like, like, you know, whoever has ears to hear, hear, you know, then they just start <laughs> preaching. And I was just like, well, <laughs> it is, it does feel very dramatic, I will say. Um, but, you know, this is a very dramatic moment for the people of Israel. Um, and so I, I think it's very, I think it, I think he opens it this way for that power and for that effect. Um, yeah. And I think it's very interesting, too, that because they didn't have the written word the same way they did. Like they had scrolls, but like from what I understand, scrolls weren't just available to everybody. Like everybody couldn't go to the store and just buy a scroll. So it was just like, they had to be very attentive to listen to what someone was telling them. And I know that's emphasized throughout the chapter as well. It's like the parents and um, teaching their children and their grandchildren. So it was like, in oral study, like they had to listen very intently or else they were going to miss something, you know? Yeah. And what's interesting too, is there's a story in um, the second book of Kings um, with um, a King named Josiah who uh, actually ends up finding what we think is the book of Deuteronomy in the temple. And apparently they had forgotten the book was there and had not been following it for a very long time. We don't know how long, um, but uh they had it read for the king. And when Deuteronomy was read before the king, the king tore his clothes. Josiah was just so filled with guilt and shame that uh, they hadn't been following Deuteronomy for 
ever. And so what he does is he holds a public ceremony where he has the whole basic land of Jerusalem that he's ruling come before him. And he has the priest read the whole book of Deuteronomy to everyone in the city. And he is basically wanting them to have that same experience he did of like realizing how far we've fallen and how far we haven't been following what these words are saying. And so it's really chilling just to kind of imagine even in that time period, centuries later, you know, him opening up to this chapter and, you know, the first words are now Israel hear the decrees, you know, and out in front of Josiah is a huge crowd. That's like listening to the book of Deuteronomy for the first time and who knows how long. So um, yeah, all of that's kind of like coming together and is something that I think, Um, We kind of miss out today because I think all of us have a written copy of the word of God a lot of times. And uh, so we kind of miss out on that sense of uh, scripture being read aloud and it being something that we're like invited into as like a a thing, you know? Yeah. It kind of puts you in a position where you're kind of forced to have community because if you don't have community and you don't communicate, then you're going to miss out on what the law actually is. And I feel like that we have, that advantage and the disadvantage of not having to come into community to understand the word of God or to study it to a certain degree. Like there is definitely something you can understand better by coming into a community community of people, but they didn't have that same privilege that we had where I can just stay at home and I can just Google something or read a bunch of books and try to come to a conclusion myself. Like they had to be in community to understand. Yeah. Yeah. And there's something about the spoken word, you know, even back in Genesis one, that idea of, uh, God spoke a word, let there be light. And there was light, you know, there's, there's this idea of like words that are spoken, hold power. Um, and you know, uh, the book of John will kind of pick up on that idea of, uh, Jesus actually being the spoken word of God that created the whole world. Um, and what that means for power, um, is really, really interesting too. Um, so for all those reasons, I think that's why he chooses to open with this, let everyone hear kind of uh, opening. Um, he talks a little bit about a history moment that he doesn't bring up in the, uh, chapters before, um, that I'll, uh, mention briefly. It's a story that happens in the book of numbers. I can't remember what chapter, maybe, you know, Ashley, but there's a chapter near the end of the book of numbers, um, where, uh, the Moabites are trying to uh, basically get the Israelites to intermarry with them so that they can't, um, uh, get killed by them essentially because they're I super think, afraid of them. I think that was numbers twenty three. If I'm Might not mistaken, be. I mean we can look it up real quick if you if you got the th- uh, got the handy dandy Google. No, it was numbers twenty five. Numbers twenty five. There we go. Um, so in numbers twenty five, there's a story of uh, the Moabites essentially uh, intermarrying with the Israelites as kind of a scheme so that um, when the Israelites do come in and conquer the land of Canaan, um, they uh, don't. Uh, kill Moab, and uh, it's much harder to kill Moab when and your fa- uh, if you, they're actually your fathers-in-law, which was their kind of strategy. And so they're like, yeah, yeah, we'll give you a bunch of daughters, and as long as you marry with them, you know, I think we'll be cool. Um, and w- what happens as a result of them intermarrying is God gets super angry at Israel for doing this, um, and so He sends um, 
uh, a plague of sorts over them. And it's a really, really violent scene. There, a lot of things happen in there that uh, I won't go into. Just uh, go read it for yourself. It's a really interesting story. Um, yeah, and I think one of my favorite things about that story, which is odd saying favorite because it's actually part of one of the gruesome things that happened, is that I think it's Eleazar, yeah. uh, one of the sons of, of Aaron, who, and I think what happens, and it doesn't make this clear in the story as far as I'm concerned, but I think when I was looking it up, I think what happens is that they're basically doing some type of, I think like a sexual ritual or something. And then there's another Israelite that brings um, a Moabite woman into the temple of God and they commit some type of sexual sexual sin within the temple and then Eleazar is just enraged and he goes and he basically kills both of them in the middle of them doing it which I guess you can kind of say it's implied because when he stabs through this Israelites it, it goes directly through the belly of the woman and so it's like well the only way the only reason the only way that it would go through her belly is if they were that close where he would be able to do that so <laughs> it's sort of implied that that was what was going on but yeah that's like a very very like interesting like part of that story yeah <laughs> yep yep that was the part i was like go read it for yourself <laughs> but all right well there we go <laughs> like, you're not gonna read it, i'm gonna tell you <laughs> oh that's great that's great um but yeah so uh all that happens and it's kind of a moment of shame for moses and the people of israel that they intermarried with these moabite women and so uh, it also has some interesting implications for the book of Ruth, by the way, if you haven't thought about that. Um, but um, because of that, uh, the um, there's kind of this judgment that happens from God. And so there's kind of a callback. All that happened. Um, and what ends up as a result, this is always in the Old Testament, um, uh, is whenever the Israelite men marry any women that are uh, of a different um nation um generally that nation leads israel astray into whatever idolatry and whatever idols um they worship and in this case it's uh, baal actually um this might actually be the first instance of baal um a canaanite deity ever getting mentioned in the bible too i haven't checked on that but um this is definitely one of the first and uh so he's reminding them um you saw with your own eyes what God did at Baal Peor, namely sending a bunch of pestilence and plagues and things like that um, uh, during that uh, judgment period. And so he's reminding them about that story. Um, and he's saying uh, that uh, a lot of them were killed because they uh, married women um, that were not followers of God, instead followers of all these other um, gods and goddesses. And as a result, God was really angry. So uh, don't do that uh, when you enter into the land. Um, hint, hint, wink, wink. This is exactly what they do once they get into yeah. the land. But um, we're not there yet. Um, we're people that have uh, know what the, where the story is going. But um, at this time period, he's just reminding them, you do have an example of what this looked like. And it is uh, worth mentioning, um, this generation is also that generation. Um, uh, the older generation had already died off by the time that the story in Numbers 25 uh, happens. So um, they did get to see with their own eyes what that looked like. Um, and that uh, for some of our earlier episodes, I had forgotten that that story happens 
uh, to this generation. So it does kind of color this generation a little bit in hindsight now, uh, remembering that uh, that's that's the story that happened to this generation, at least. But I did want to bring something up, I guess, something that made me think about, like, the danger of marrying someone of another nation, because it kind of reminded me of Moses, um, Aaron, the, his his uh, siblings, Aaron and Miriam, cr- criticized Moses for marrying someone who wasn't an Israelite. Mm. And so it seems that God doesn't seem to have a problem with that. So I guess I just wanted to put the emphasis on the idea of, I guess it's not so much the other nation, but it's the fact that they were leading them astray. Because yeah. I think that even when they left, if I'm not mistaken, even when they left Egypt, I think there was like a mixed tribe of people that came with them, wasn't it? Like a mixed group of people that weren't Israelites or weren't fully Israelites. Maybe they were like partly Egyptian or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so so it, it's interesting. Um, the uh, I believe she was a Cushite. Um, and uh, I'd be curious about that because we'll find in Deuteronomy later on that there's a specific law that's just like don't intermarry with anyone from Canaan. Um, but I don't remember if that law applied to anyone in the Cushite or Egyptian lands to the south. So that might be one of the things, too. I'm not sure. Um, but there's definitely like a straight law in Deuteronomy that's like don't intermarry with anyone from Canaan, basically, um, because they will lead you astray. And we'll get there. But yeah. Yeah, because I guess I was wondering if the issue with that law was just the other nations or the fact that the other nations are worshiping other gods and they're going to lead you astray. Does right, that does right. it make sense? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. And I, and I think that's kind of what the book of Ruth is cluing in on, because um, you'll see uh, uh, if you haven't read the book of Ruth, I'd, I'd, I'd encourage you to go read it. The book of Ruth is, I, I say, is one of the most scandalous books in the Bible for many reasons, this being one of them. Um, I was going to say something else. I don't mean to backtrack, but I yeah. thought it was really interesting in verse two, like when he says, do not add um do not what does it say do not add to what i command you do not subtract from it that same concept is used at the very end of the entire bible in the book of revelations where it says like it it gives like it it actually gives a penalty for it though and it talks about and i can if i go back and read the whole thing it should be like i think it's like the last last thing and yeah i think it's just like the last few verses of revelation Mm -hmm. so it just ends the bible out pretty much what does that say in Revelations 22, 18, it says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of the scroll. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the place described in the scroll. And if anyone takes words away from the scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in, and in the holy city, which are described in the scroll. So I just thought it was interesting that Deuteronomy opens up with the same thing that the entire Bible ends with. So. Yep, yep. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of, th- this is why this episode is going to take so long, is there's so many different things uh, like basically pulling from different uh, places uh, all over Scripture, and especially even in Romans. Uh, Romans will quote a lot from this chapter in particular. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of things that are going on. Um, we do need to move move forward just a little bit into this, um, otherwise we'll be here all night. But what we've got so far is um, we've got the uh, basic opening with the here. Um, he talks and reminds everybody of Baal Pe- uh, Peor and says, don't go down that road. Um, and then in verse 5, uh, continuing on, he says, See, I have taught you the decrees and the laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of. Observe them carefully, for this will show you your wisdom and understanding standing to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say surely this is a great nation is a wise and understanding people um so here's an interesting point um a lot of people think that the law was just set up to be something because god was like doesn't like pigs or god doesn't like 
uh, X, Y, and Z, you know? Uh, and that's why these laws were in here is because God just has a problem with these things. Um, you can see right here that's not the case. The whole reason that these laws and instructions are here is that their wisdom instructions that are going to set them apart from the rest of the nations. And the whole goal is if they were to follow them, the nations will look on at them and be so awed by how different they're acting and mm-hmm. how how wise that is. So there is something about it that's not just like insane to act. Like the, there's a part of it, if, if they were to follow it, the other nations would look on and say, that's wise. That's wise to act that way. Um, yeah. And and I think that's something that gets missed a lot when we think about the Leviticus especially. It's yeah. just like, you know, we think of it as just like a, a, a very um, a weird and odd book and with odd laws. And that's because we're born in 2022. Um, well, maybe not born, but, you know, we, we live in that era. And uh, the idea is that, like, it's not necessarily that... Uh, these laws are crazy to the people of their time. As a matter of fact, a lot of these laws are actually fairly normal mm-hmm. for the time period. And you'll find that like there are other laws in there's a, for instance, uh, a law book called the code of Hammurabi um, uh, who, uh, Basically, you can read all of his laws that he had for his people. He's a king of, I think, Babylon, if I remember right. And uh, he has this whole law code that he has for his people. And you'll find that there's a lot of similarities between his code that he has for his people and the code uh, or or the law that God gave them at uh, Mount Sinai. And so it's not one of these things where God's just really up on a high horse and has a bunch of problems with all this different kind of stuff. And so he gives a bunch of laws to this people group to really restrict them so they don't have freedom. Um, That's the wrong narrative to take into this. Um, The idea is that, no, this is kind of par par for the course of what a nation of this time period would have. And what's interesting is where we notice the differences between, say, the uh, Babylonian code and this one. And what we'll find is a lot of the differences are that people like the foreigner, people like um, the... Uh, outcast, um, the fatherless, the widows, uh, anybody of lower social status, um, they get a better fair shake than people in other other law codes. And yeah, that's actually what I was going to say because I brought this book just so I could read a little bit of it because it Go talks it. about that. So <laughs> there's this book that I read in one of my classes last year that said it's um, it's entitled The True Story of the Whole World. It's by Michael Goheen and Craig Bartholomew. Mm. And um, it talks about this idea of, you know, why God created those laws. And it talks about this concept that those laws were meant to set them apart from other nations, even though they were entering what, in what we talked about, I think, like a week or so ago about the, those suzerain treaties um, that were very common during that time. So the outline of the treaty that God God makes with his people is very similar to what kings would do with other nations, but just the content of it is um, a little different. And it also reminds me of when this same professor who um, recommended this book that we read um, for his class, um, he made this comment, I'm paraphrasing it, but it's like this idea that laws are set in place to protect our joy, not to take away our joy, but to protect it. And so in this book, he talks about how he makes this comment. He says, so the commandments are keys to living fully human lives, not constraints to make life difficult. Obedience to the law will lead to a flourishing community. So God is like putting this in place to protect the joy of every individual in this community. But for the differences, what it says, and I won't read the whole thing. I'll just read um, this portion that says, although the laws of the time typically valued property above people and made the punishment for stealing greater than for murder, Israel's law values people 
above mere property for only people of all God's creatures have been, has been fashioned in his image. Moreover, as other law codes protected the rich and powerful, God's law protects the poor and vulnerable. And you see an example of that in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 24, which I don't want to jump ahead like all those <laughs> yeah, chapters, yeah, yeah. but like it, it gives examples in Deuteronomy 24 um, about the things that God required them to do to make sure that the poor had enough to eat, for example. And so it was just like an example of how like, these laws were meant to benefit people who were of low status and didn't have a lot of money. So Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love that point. Like the idea is that, um, uh, okay. Something to add to that is, um, a lot of people think that the law, I think we get this from Romans. A lot of times is a misreading of Romans in my view, um, is I think we think that the law was just given because Israel was a bunch of sinners mm-hmm. and, uh, they just needed something to kind of, uh, basically show them how bad they were as sinners. And after that, like, uh, yeah, it, it didn't need to be done anymore. And so all, all the law is, is a bunch of these law codes that are given to, uh, show how evil Israel is. And that's the only point that, uh, the law has that's in direct disagreement with what this is saying mm-hmm. right yeah. here. Like, I mean, you, you kind of have to take a supersessionist view of scripture if uh, you like want to make that work um, because like otherwise like these verses here are in, in direct conflict with it. And what I found is that um, a lot of people don't understand what the law's original story was supposed to do. And uh, that's mainly because people don't understand what the story of Israel was supposed to be. And I've said it many times in the Isaiah podcast. I'll say it again. The story of Israel was that originally they were supposed to be a light to the nations to bring salvation to the rest of the nations. And they were supposed to follow the law so that they could bring that salvation to the rest of the nations. And the idea was that the rest of the nations would look on and see them following the law and see how beautiful they were and see how wonderful of a city on a hill, shining light they were, and that was to bring them to Mount Zion where they then would fall in love with God themselves because they saw this people that loved God so deeply and were willing to give up so many different things that they uh, didn't have to give up necessarily, but were because they were following God, following Torah. And when they saw that, they would be a people that would want to ask about who God was and want to learn about God and want to develop a relationship with God in the same way that the people of Israel were doing. That was the original story. And the idea is that with um, the New Testament and what happens, there's it's not that God just like sort of chucks that plan. It's that uh, Jesus as a Jew is an Israelite and he lives out that story that Israel was supposed to live out. The weird kind of thing is that Jesus also has to do it for the people of Israel because the people of Israel failed with the law. And that's why Paul is so big about the idea of the law is now not something that we need to follow anymore. Uh, especially because it's not about that. It was just something that was given to give you a bunch of extra rules for a specific time until Jesus came. The idea was that it's that Jesus actually lived out the law successfully. And if you don't believe that Jesus lived out the law successfully, then you're still trying to live out the law on its old terms. And that means that you're going to be judged as cursed if you don't follow it. And that's Paul's logic there. Hopefully that makes sense. But it's, it's that idea that like the whole, point of Deuteronomy here is kind of setting that up at the front end is this idea of um, Deuteronomy here is saying, if you follow this, things are going to go well, like things are going to go well. Um, It's going to bring 
flourishing and life. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He followed Deuteronomy to the T. And so he brought life to everyone else. And so it's not that like it just gets chucked off by the wayside. Like that actually happens and that story gets fulfilled. Um, and that's just a beautiful thing that I think we miss a lot of times. Sorry, that's kind of a tangent rant, but like, no, that's, that's good. It, it was making me think about a whole bunch of different things. Like, you know, the example of in the book that I talked about, the true story, the whole world talks about this. And then the Bible also, also gets clarity on this, that one of the, one of also one of the biggest differences between, um, the laws that the Israelites followed and the other and then the other nations did not was that um, the Israelites were not allowed to put any image and worship any image because they don't know what their God looks like, you know? Mm. And so, but the other nations did, they had images that they worshiped. And so for the Israelites to not have an image was incredibly different because that like in, in that time period, at least according to this book, it's like, well, if you don't, if you're not worshiping an image, you're not really worshiping a God. So what do you believe right. in? You don't believe in anything. And so it's like this idea that human beings themselves are the image of God. So when you see human beings acting according to the laws that God is giving them, that is the representation of God, not, not a wooden image, not a metal image. Human beings are that representation. And it's like this really beautiful thing that God is taking everyone into consideration, not just the rich and powerful, which is what the other nations would do is that you go into another nation and you see this light that's sort of shining upon the rich and the powerful and then the poor kind of left out. And God wants that light to shine on everyone because everyone is equally made in God's image, despite what their status may be. Mm. And so God is like putting this, these laws in place so that everyone gets to feel that they are equal in the, in the presence of God, despite the fact that they may have a different status in the world. And I think that that's like a really beautiful thing for all of us to consider. Yeah. And and it's interesting because that, ties in directly to like what follows here where um, he calls them to remember the moment at Mount Sinai and the fact that there was no image that they saw in the fire and the smoke, right? Mm -hmm. Like they didn't see anything. And I think what's kind of implied here, he doesn't outright say it, but I think what's kind of implied there is the reason they didn't see an image is because humans are the image. Yeah, Like, you know, they are the thing and that's what he's going to be trying through this whole law that he's setting out. That's what they're calling the they're calling to flourishing is is to be the image of God. Like to if you are a human that is following after God and following after Torah and seeking wisdom, then you are becoming the image of God. That's the whole point. And that's how that fits into the story of Israel as a, being the image of God then makes the other nations see who God is and then want to draw closer and also become the image of God as they were intended, which is also why he like goes on this like long, what might appear to us like a tangent about like um, idolatry in verse 15 and following and how like they're not supposed to like make any graven images and God's a jealous God and all this kind of stuff. But I want to think about that in terms of like how like if you humans are the image of God. What's the worst thing that an image of God can do is make another image that's different than them, right? Right. You know? Like that's it's the idea. less than you are. Yeah, that's less than you are. Like that's the worst thing you could do. And what's interesting is he walks through um, a list of different images that they could make um, that is not them. And all of them are the things that God created um, in days four through five of Genesis. You've got the birds. You've got the... Um, Uh, creepy crawly things that like crawl on the ground. You've got um, the fish. You've got, um, uh, he even goes so far as to mention like um, days two and three and one even like uh, mentions like the waters below, right? And like you've got like the sky above, which is the waters above. And then he even talks about the, the sky, the moon and the stars, which were created on day four. And his basic point is like, look, if you remember back to Genesis one, like 
all of these things were created um, by God and you crafting and creating an image of them uh, is very uh, anti-Genesis 1. Like it's not what Genesis 1 says. It says in Genesis 1 that y'all humans are the ones crafted in the image of God. And so I think all of that's kind of being hinted at here is the hope is that um, they will live this life that's beautiful, that's um, fruitful, um, that will be a life of human flourishing where they can basically show that they are the image of God and uh, show who God is. And if they instead make all these uh, graven images, all these images of other things like fish and stars, and, and if they begin to bow down to them and worship them, what they're doing is they're basically exchanging their rightful place as mm-hmm. leader and as image bearer of God and exchanging it for another. And right. it's sort of like, you know, um, uh, casting aside the gift that's been given you uh, that God gave you, really, and which is a huge affront to God. It's like, you know, God gave you the gift of being able to, like, live in this fruitful way that's going to show who he is and show how beautiful he is. It's like a painting that says, I don't want to be a painting anymore. Mm. I want to be, you know, whatever uh, that rock over there is, you know, like, and, and that's kind of what's going on. And that's why it's such an offense for them to do this. Um, and, and you know, I, I think, again, like, it doesn't really make sense to us if we don't have that understanding of how powerful the image of God was um, for God and for the people that he was calling them to be, you know? Yeah. And I think that also goes to show why God put certain laws in place, because I think that goes back to what you talked about, like the book of Leviticus and how um, I think people maybe who are not as familiar with the Old Testament think that those laws that God set in place are just about holiness, like about being unclean or clean. And there's also a lot of social justice laws involved about that because God doesn't just want us to be holy and righteous, like as far as like being bodily clean so that you can enter into the temple and so you can worship properly. But he also wants us to treat each other well and treat each other in the same way that just as you are made in the image of God, those other people that you are in community with are also made in the image of God. So you treat them in the same way that you would want to be treated. And that's kind of that emphasis that he makes in Deuteronomy 24 when he's leaving those things for the poor. The reason that he says to do that is because you remember how you were treated when you were in Egypt. Like, so you were enslaved by people. And so even if you're wealthy, you don't treat other people the same way that you were treated when you were in Egypt because there was a point in time where you where your people were not wealthy. Yeah. And so like he's saying like, OK, well, this is the place that I brought you to. So despite that person's status and you treat them the same way that you would want to be treated because that person who is poor is still made in the image of God. And so you do whatever you can to be generous to that person, understanding that you're doing it to someone who's made in that image. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's that's the whole thing about uh, even in this time period. They did have a concept in other cultures of uh, kings and really mighty people being made in the image of God. Even Pharaoh will call mm-hmm. himself um, the image of the gods, basically. But it was very rare to that almost no religion that I know of ever claim that every human is made in the image of God, even right. like the poor beggar, you know, like that's and that's that's the most powerful thing about yeah. all this whole thing is just. Yeah, that's the, a good point. I, yeah, just like every single human being is made in the image of God. And that that is why they're to treat even the lowly and the oppressed and the widow um, and the foreigner and anyone with respect and dignity. Um, 
And so, yeah, like all of that kind of culminates in this kind of ending uh, section where he like uh, then talks about what's going to happen if they don't follow through. So that's all the blessing. That's all the beautiful things that'll happen if they, you know, follow after God. They'll be image bearers. They'll be fruitful. Um, But if they actually go after these other gods and goddesses, if they make images, um, then God is a jealous God. You know, he doesn't want uh, anybody. He doesn't want his children to just run away from him. And uh, as a result, like if they don't follow through, like they're going to get scattered and you see actually a little bit of kind of Moses's prophetic voice kind of coming, coming out. Moses, I think is one of the first real prophets in scripture, even though like he technically doesn't fall in the prophet section of the um, uh, Hebrew Bible. But um, he has this moment here at the end where he's like, I will call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you this day, that you will quickly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live there long, but you will certainly be destroyed. That is if they um, uh, don't follow God's Uh, law. Uh, And he says here, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. There you will worship uh, man-made gods of wood and stone, which uh, cannot see or hear or eat or smell. Sounds pretty terrible, right? But here's what's the really cool prophetic part at the end of this. But he says, but if you, uh, if from there you seek the Lord with all your heart and will, uh, you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your ancestors, which he confirmed by oath. So this is the cool thing is like even here, like even in the like really hardcore law section of scripture where he's just like, if you do this, good things are going to happen. If you don't do this, bad things are happening. Even here we have kind of this prophetic voice of Moses saying, but when you don't, here's what's going to happen if you don't. And yeah, things are going to get bad, but at some point things will get good again. And that's what I love about, like, I think, I think that's what people miss about the law and these books is that, um, it doesn't just, it's not just like hardcore, like <laughs> you just yeah. are, are not going to follow and things are going to go terrible and that's it period and yeah. discussion. Mm-hmm. Like there is a sense in which even here we have this promise of hope that, um, Kind of, I think this is Moses knowing where things are going to go, even like knowing that the people are going to fail. And so he's giving them that preamble of hope of that, of that when things go that way, uh, there is hope even then. And I just love that. Like, I love that as, as like sort of the part of this whole exhortation. Like, you know, it's, it's one thing to give a sermon and give a sermon of like, here's what you need to do to be a successful person. And if you don't do it, then these terrible things are happening. And if you do do it, these good things are going to happen and then end it there. Like that's a good sermon, but that shows me something more deep in your heart when you as a pastor or as a teacher, wherever you are in your culture, like if you can go a step further and say, but I know you're all humans and I know you're all flawed. And I know that if you failed at this, things are going to get bad, but here's how you can then work your way out of it. That's like, that's another level of just like pastoral mentorship for me, you know, just like someone that can, doesn't just kind of leave it at the, um, at the kind of, it's your choice now do what, do what you need to do kind of thing. But instead takes that extra step to really like sit with a person in their brokenness. I don't know that that speaks a lot to me. Yeah. It's really encouraging to know that saying no to something isn't the end of the story. Like I was like, I knew you were going to say no. And I knew you were going to turn down the wrong pass, uh, the wrong path. So this is the plan that I have in mind for that. Right. (laughs) right. (laughs) 
Yeah. So it's kind of reminded me of what I said at the beginning of the podcast about how like sometimes, you know, I feel like pressure to do things that I really don't want to do that God wants me to do this, but I'm not ready to do it. But then it's just encouraging to know that me not being ready in that moment and me not giving God a solid yes, it's not the end of the story because he was already prepared for that because he knew I was going to say, eh, no, I'm not really ready. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. Oh, I was going to say, I thought it was really interesting. Like when he goes into like these um, punishments that are going to happen, he says that he calls the heavens and the earth as witness against them. And that did kind of remind me of Genesis. It kind of reminds me of like the flood actually, because I know that there's um, this concept. I think the Bible project talks about this a little bit too. uh, When they talk about, I think it was um, God being angry, but this idea um, that it was if you look at different translations, when it talks about the flood, like in the ESV, it'll say God punished them with the earth. And Mm. so it's this idea. And also it talks about how the earth was filled up with violence. So it's sort of like, look, God looked upon the earth and because of sin being in the world, the earth itself was being filled up with violence. Like not just the earth, like symbolically, but literally the land was filled up with sin because like the land also suffers as a result of sin. So it's kind of like, in a way, it kind of, I guess this is how I kind of interpret it based on that connection is like the guy, the idea of like God looking upon the earth. And if he's seen sin within the land, within the, the earth itself, that they're not doing what God called them to do. And so like the earth and the land is suffering because of what, uh, because of the, uh, because of the sin that they're committing, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I think about this too, very poetically, cause I just kind of have that poet mind, but it's like, uh, when you're born, there are really two constants in the universe, the earth that's under your feet and the sky that's above you. Like they're always there and they're always watching everything you do. Mm -hmm. I mean, even if you go inside a house, like they're still there, you know, like, and they like, it's, I think that's kind of what was in their mind is this, this idea of there's always two people, one looking down on you and one looking up at you, right? Like Mm -hmm. the the earth looking up at you as a person and like the sky looking down on you and, and like imagining them poetically as, you know, uh, persons like as things that could have thoughts and be witnesses, I think is part of this like poetic drive that he's thinking about in terms of like, I'm calling on the two things that are the things that you have seen and felt and have been around you since you were born. You know, like I'm calling on those two things that are, will be here even after you die and have been here long before you were born. I'm calling on those two things as a witness to, what's going to happen here. And I don't know. I I think that there's some type of really powerful significance to the idea. Even I remember like, um, recently a couple months ago, I went and, uh, walked across like the big river bridge. That's like this walking bridge that can walk over the Mississippi river. We live in Memphis. And so there's this like big bridge that they've built that you can just like walk all the way across the Mississippi river um, and just kind of look down. And I remember getting to like the midway point of that bridge. And so underneath me is just, the Mississippi river filled with water and whatever's down there. And I'm looking like at the shoreline of Memphis and like seeing sort of all the skyscrapers we have, not many, but do you know a few and just seeing what that looks like. And I'm just gazing at it and I'm gazing at like the water. And I just remember like getting this deep sense that like Memphis was praying for me. Like, I don't, I don't know how to describe that other than just like, the land and the place, the river, everything there was like praying for me to do well in the world, you know? And like, it was this sense that I've never been able to describe really fully accurately other than just to say that, yeah, I felt like the land was praying for me. I know that sounds really weird, but like, that's the sense I got 
staring at this thing. And um, yeah, like I, I, I do think that there is something to, you know, when it says like the stones will cry out mm-hmm. um, if humans are silent, you know, like I, I think there's actually something real there that we're not sensing maybe because we're too busy looking at human man-made objects all the time. I don't know. But like uh, that sense of like uh, depth, uh, and like, I, I heard it, you know, like, I, I don't know. I, maybe that sound, makes me sound crazy and weird, but uh, no, I don't think it does. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was a really profound moment for me. And, uh, I, I think about that a lot when I see like these types of verses, like where I call on heaven and earth to like, um, be witnesses. Um, but, um, I, I love bringing that up, uh, because it kind of moves into like sort of his like last couple thoughts here before we close. Um, one of the interesting things is at the, uh, after he gets through like that whole segment and kind of calls them, uh, calls heavens and earth to kind of witness what's going to happen. Um, he then kind of goes into this like beautiful, um, kind of praise and thanksgiving to God and uh, kind of goes into these many kind of questions of like, what kind of God is this that does this, you know? And like, it's just filled with, you can hear Moses's like joy and ecstasy and like uh, awe at what God has done, especially just with the whole story of the Exodus. And what's, what's interesting that I think a lot of people miss here is that like the story of Exodus is like, you know, uh, one of the most like profound and like deeply like historical things um, that's still contested today. Like still historians don't think it happened. It's, it's very contested, but like at the same time, like it's so like, it's so feels real. You know, it's the only thing other than Jesus dying and resurrecting. I feel like that has that kind of significance in my mind as like a historical moment that if this actually happened, there is a God, right? Like, right. right if, if this historically happened, there's no doubt there is a God. Like um, those two stories, Jesus dying and resurrecting and the Exodus are kind of the two linchpins of like there being a God existing for me, I guess. And like, I, while both are contested in historical studies, like I think that both happened, you know, like I, I'm convinced historically that both of these happened. And I think that that's kind of what Moses is like praising God about right now is that he experienced that and had this sense of like how wonderful and amazing God is because he watched all of these powerful things happen um, that should not have happened to this people that was a group of slaves um, to Pharaoh, you know, and I, and I just I, I see that I see the I see the the not joy, but just like the worship of Moses must have been so sweet to God because that was so in his head all the time having to witness because, you know, Moses literally started as a kid watching his nation be oppressed like the whole time and to be a human that gets to like watch as plague after plague happens watches like God uses him as the person that like leads them out. Like that would have been a surreal, like I can't imagine the head space that Moses would have been in. And this is like a random thought that I never thought about before until you said this, but it makes me think about how there's like some book of the new Testament. I can't remember which one it is, but it talks about this concept of how all those, all the stories that we see in the old Testament, like these people are, basically working towards something that they never got to see. Like they never actually got to see the Messiah come. Mm. And so, but we get the benefit of that. We get the benefit of something that they did not get to see something they were hoping and believing in for, but never actually got to see. But then you saying that kind of made me think about, well, they actually saw something that at least 
the Israelite nation did not get to see in the time of Jesus because they kept wanting to be delivered from Rome. And that was not what happened. (laughs) Like Jesus (laughs) didn't come to deliver them from Rome. He came to deliver them from this, this sort of spiritual darkness. Like I guess that's not the way you, I would put it. And it's sort of like they got to see a nation oppress them and then get to see God actually be that sort of military God they were looking for and then defeat them and then deliver them and then continue to defeat nation after nation. So that was something that they desired that they did not get, but then the people before them got. So it just made me think. Yeah. Well, and not just spiritual darkness, but death, like, like the fact that every human dies like that is what he came to destroy, which is the only thing that Rome could threaten Israel with in the first place, you know? And so I I do think that there is a sense in which like Jesus does conquer Rome. He just conquers Rome through conquering death, which is the only thing he has. Yes, he does. I just meant like from like a literal point of view. I know know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just one of those things where it's like the, the sense in which Jesus is king uh, is really being shown, I think, even in the beginnings here in the Exodus story, because, you know, uh, I've talked a lot about how, like, you know, it's the death of a firstborn in Egypt that leads the people out of e- Egypt. It's the death of a firstborn that leads us out of spiritual darkness and death, you know? Like, there are so many parallels between, and I even think the book of Acts and Paul kind of saw the Exodus story as sort of like the Christian story, and mm-hmm. you can even see that worked out in um, Hebrews even. Uh, it's just this idea that the whole the whole journey of these Israelites is the Christian story, um, and that them getting uh, out of Egypt is the same thing is us getting out of sin and bondage and slavery is what Paul will use. Um, loads more we could get into there. There's a whole, you, you know, just go and read Romans. But um, the uh, cool thing is that after uh, he talks about all of that and praises God for all this power and might, um, he also of note, just kind of with the idea of like having seen things, um, talks about that in verse 35, you were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God beside him. There is no other. Again, that's kind of goes back to my point. The Exodus is a moment in time where, uh, we can look historically at it and let it inform us about the fact that there is a God, you know, um, even beyond that, like, Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven and above and on earth below. There is no other. Keep his decrees and commandments. Um, He kind of ends with this idea that um, we started with, right? Where if you keep his decrees and commandments, which I'm giving you today, so that it will go well. Um, And if you don't keep it, then it's not going to go well. Um, And there is kind of this emphasis, too, that we didn't get to talk about a lot. There's so many things in here. (laughs) Um, But, like, there's one thing I do want to highlight right before we get to the end with the cities of refuge and stuff is – there's a huge emphasis on teaching the children and teaching your uh, children's children. Um, and this is like the whole point is because there's their belief in God is so through sight and through story, you mm-hmm. know, like it's the story of Egypt that gives us the reason for faith, right? It's the story of Abraham that gives us the reason for faith, right? And so if you don't teach your children those stories, if you don't, bring in the history of those stories, then their children are not going to have that same reason for their faith, you know? And so that this is the point that I, I try and harp on is history matters. Like yeah, if you just does. preach what people are supposed to do in the present, that's not going to be enough. You've got to teach your children like the stories themselves and how they struggled in those stories and what was going on in those stories that made them choose this direction instead of this direction. And if you can explain those stories well enough, that will give 
people the wisdom that they need that's way better than just preaching a sermon about what you should do and what you shouldn't do. Uh, and that's just something that like is a hobby horse of mine that I talk about a lot is that like the, the history of the Bible isn't just something that's boring and something that you just read to go to sleep at night. It's something that will actually give you as much wisdom as reading Paul or, yeah. you know, like uh, any of the gospel narratives or whatever. The gospel narratives themselves are stories. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the the power of them is just reading the stories of Jesus doing thing after thing after thing. Um, and I think that's a, there's a, also a reason why Jesus chose to tell most of his instructions in parable stories. You know, like all of that kind of ties into that point. Yeah, I think people really underestimate the the power of storytelling because like even if you take out the the factor of biblical storytelling like storytelling in itself is just really powerful like even if you're just talking about your life like people are very interested in the stories of other people's lives mm-hmm. like and I think about like when I'm at work like we'll have people tell stories about their lives like our boss will just like come out of his office and he'll start talking about his family about whatever like his son dating this girl and like whatever's going on with them and then we'll just be listening and asking questions and all these different things or like we'll like one of um our district manager well, one of our old managers left recently but then he was there and he would tell stories about his childhood like the you know the trouble he used to stir up when he was a kid and it's just really interesting to listen to and people talk about those things and I think that there's something powerful about storytelling and testimonies and I think even I think it's revelation that talks about like what does it say like I can't remember it word for word but it's like we are like we are saved by the blood of the lamb and the power like the word of our testimony and like that so like that yeah (laughs) so I think it's like the idea that testimonies are very very powerful when you tie that into a story but I did want to give a side note on the cities of refuge I was just thinking about this just in case so I wanted to know so I think there's only three that are listed here there are actually six cities of refuge so if you remember last time like I think last chapter we were talking about those three nations that stayed on the other side of the Jordan right so that's that's where three of the cities are so three of this three of the cities of refuge are on that side of the Jordan um, with those three nations that decided not to fully enter in I guess you could say right right. and then there's there's three nations that are actually in the land of Canaan that are in the tribe of Naphtali, Ephraim and Judah. So there's six of them. It's just that three are on one side of the Jordan and then three are on the other side of the Jordan. That's, that's really good, helpful clarification on that. The cities of refuge are really interesting because, um, uh, just the idea that like if you accidentally kill someone like that's not necessarily going to mean that you're going to die you know like that's a right. really interesting concept and like i want to do a little bit more research just in like the um like for sure the cities of refuge are pulling from the story of cain like the story of cain and abel is the story of cities and refuge hmm. right like cain kills abel he does it intentionally too so it's a, even a little bit more like uh weird um for Cain but with Cain like after he kills Abel intentionally um uh God's like puts a mark on him so that no one will kill him and then he goes and founds a city that's the city of Cain and this is for sure kind of like calling on that idea of like basically people that were like Cain that accidentally killed someone not intentionally but a little different but people that accidentally kill someone have a city to go to and be with that sort of mark of Cain basically on anyone that lives in this city um, which is just a really interesting like I want to do more research on that just as like a, a like what is God like trying to say there with that story like what's going on I think some of it is just like there's definitely this role that I've been reading in uh, Hebrews of the the idea of like intentional and unintentional sin. Like Mm -hmm. if you like, even with the story of Cain, right? I don't think that Cain like 
it looks as if they're like the story is depicting Kane's anger and murder as sin crouching at the door, seeking to devour him. So it like seems to be something outside of him that like grabs a hold of him and then makes him do this thing almost, you know, um, like, you know, not necessarily like something very premeditated and something super evil in himself. I don't think if it was, I don't think God would have let him live otherwise. Um, but the interesting thing in, what we find in Hebrews is that there is this kind of concept of if you intentionally sin against God, like intentionally from your own heart, just really just hate God and intentionally sin against God, that there is sort of there that that's a different level of sin than if you were to unintentionally sin against God. And you can find that even in like Leviticus um, is where it first kind of lays out this idea of there's different sacrifices for if you intentionally sin versus if you uh, um, unintentionally sin. And so I don't know, there's just a lot of questions I have about it that I've wanted to like delve into and see kind of like where that leads. But as of right now, I just kind of wanted to like lay out that there are those distinctions in scripture. Um, and that this is one of those examples of kind of a distinction of unintentional sin has a lesser punishment than intentional sin. So yeah, maybe that helps. But, um, did you have something on that, Ashley? Yeah. I think one of the interesting things I found about the city of refuge, and this isn't, I don't think this is in Deuteronomy. I don't know if it's in the book of Joshua, because I know the book of Joshua talks about the city of refuge, uh, city of cities of refuge too. But I think it's this concept of like that person who goes to the city of refuge is not allowed to return. I think it's something about him not returning until like the priest dies. Mm. And I was wondering, like, the connection between that, like, you know, fleeing for safety and staying there until the priest dies. Like, what does the priest have to do with that? I don't know if, like, the priest dying is, like, some sort of redemption and how, I don't know if that's symbolic for something that we see in the New Testament. I just thought it was interesting. I was like, I wanted to look more into that. Yeah, that'd be fun. That'd be fun. Let me know. Um, All right. So we go through the cities of refuge pretty quickly. Um, Thank you for that distinction again, by the way. Then at the very end, he sort of gives his introduction to the next sermon, which is going to be way longer than this one. This, like, <laughs> like I said, this is this is kind of like um, the a mini sermon, and then he's going to give a full long one that's going to span chapters. And so he says, "This is the law." Moses set before the Israelites. These are the stipulations, decrees, laws Moses gave them when they came out of Egypt and were in the valley near Beth uh, Peor, east of the Jordan, and kind of just establishes like a little bit more of like where they are situated in the history of it before he closes. Um, And that's where we wrap up this chapter. Again, um, it's super, super powerful chapter, which is why we spent so much time on it. Um, I'm not going to apologize for that. This was fun. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> it was really interesting. I actually said a lot more than I thought because I was concerned that I was going to say like two or three things and I was just going to be like, okay, I don't know what else <laughs> to say. And they actually, I guess God just spoke through us and he just wanted us to say what we needed to say. So, you know, yeah, there well, you go. Yeah, well, we, we did pray before this. Opened, That's true. So, you know. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for tuning in again and we will be back in your feed again next week. Bye. Bye.